Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Author Lisa C. has a new work of fiction out called The Island of Sea Women. Though by the title one might assume it was a work of fantasy or science fiction, in fact, there is an island off the Korean peninsula called Jeju where women are the dominant force and they seem to have superhuman skills when it comes to surviving the freezing ocean waters while harvesting food. As to not give away much of the plot or risk giving out any spoilers, Mrs. C comes back by the woodpile to help us understand the history and inner workings of this unique island and its people. Uh, first of all, how did you come to know about the Cheju? Is that how you say it? The, the island people? The women themselves are called Henya, which means sea women. And uh, I was sitting in a doctor's office about 10 years ago, flipping through a magazine, like, you know, we all do, mm-hmm. waiting to be called in when I came across a tiny little article, just one paragraph, one photograph about the divers. And I was just so amazed by them and that I ripped it out of the magazine and took it home. And I knew even then that I wanted to write about them at some point. But, you know, I was working on another book and then I was working on another book. And then about four years ago, UNESCO gave the divers um, this designation of an intangible world heritage tradition. And part of the reason they did that is that um, UNESCO was anticipating that within about 15 years, so now that would be 10 or 11 years from now, um, that this culture was going to disappear from the earth. And by that time, I knew that the divers you know, are older. They're in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I just felt like, well, look, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'd better do it now. Because if you want to interview, you know, if I wanted to interview people, it, I was taking a big risk to wait 5, 10, 15 years. So explain to folks how it came to be that on this island that the women became the prime, I guess, breadwinner, you would call them, while the men ended up... right taking care of the children at home. So uh, you'd actually have to go back a couple of hundred years and this diving was something that the men did. And so first let's just, you know, these are free divers. They take deep breaths and then dive down on a single breath to harvest seafood and stay underwater while the women stay underwater two to three, four minutes. And, you know, they're down about 60 feet. That is deep enough to get the bends. And, and like I said, they harvest seafood. So they're the breadwinners in their families. And like you said, uh, the men stay home and take care of the house, the kids do the cooking, all that stuff. But if you go back to the mid 17th century, this was men's work. And uh, this was the time of the Korean kingdoms and the then king wanted to tax men for their labor. And the men were trying to figure out, oh, how can we get around this? And they thought about it and they thought, ah, we can have our wives do this work. And so that's when the women started diving. They were able to learn how to do the breathing, which, you know, takes a certain amount of practice. If you've ever tried it to hold your breath, you know, I I often do this with groups. I time them to see how long people can hold their breaths and 
Um, the average is about 45 seconds. And I think the longest I've ever had in a group was a minute and 45 seconds, but she had been a swimmer in high school. So it, it you know, takes some practice. Uh, but the other thing was that the women were able to withstand the cold a lot better than the men could. And the reason, of course, is women have a little more fat on them. So uh, the women turned out to be really adept at this work and they kept doing it. And that's how it, it really switched over to women's labor. Talk about some of the dangers of the diving, not only uh, some of the predators that plain are... plain old drowning. Well, there's that. Yeah, yeah there's I mean, that. They're, they're, they could get their hair tangled in rocks. This is a volcanic island. Uh, so it's very rocky under the sea. It's rocky on the island, too. And so you could get cut um, on these very sharp rocks. Uh, you can bleed to death. I mean, you know, it, these are very sharp. But it doesn't take much of a cut to invite sharks in the neighborhood or, you know, a free lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, they Harvesting abalone is very dangerous. Uh, the way they do it is you stick up this tool and, you know, try to sneak up on an abalone, which is floating above the rock and flip of the tool underneath the shell and flip it off the rock. But if you don't do it correctly, the right as you're slipping the tool under the shell, the, the abalone can clamp down. And because the tool is strapped or in the old days was strapped really tightly to a woman's wrist, she couldn't get away. Um, being hit by boats, getting tangled in seaweed, uh, sudden underwater surges, and of course, just not timing your breath properly. And so let's just say that ordinarily you could be underwater for three minutes, but maybe last night you didn't get enough to eat or you didn't sleep well or you had an argument with your husband, you know, whatever. And the next morning you're just not feeling yourself. And so there you are and you're 40 or 60 feet under the water and you know, you know you can go for three minutes, but on this day you can only do it for two minutes and 45 seconds. And yet you're still 60 feet under, you know, away from air. So women could also just drown from making a mistake on that particular day about their breath. Now, regardless if they were men or women, this kind of uh, work would take a toll on their bodies over time. Can you talk about that? There are a few things that happen to women. You know, first of all, being underwater and so deep over such a long period of time, it really has affected their hearing. They also, in the late 1970s, started wearing wetsuits. And, you know, to be in the water with a wetsuit and get down, you have to wear these heavy weights on your hips. And so um, they do historically have a lot of, or, you know, from the 1970s onward have had serious problems with their hips. Um, what are some other things? Uh, obviously, if you get the bends, you, know, you have to go and get in the hyperbaric chamber. Um, so, you know, there, there are all kinds of things like that that have affected them. Actually, the the way that they have been studied the most has to do with their ability to withstand cold. Uh, they did historically have the greatest ability of any human group on earth to withstand cold water. And I did look at about 
20 different studies. Uh, most of them had to do with this question of, you know, how can they withstand cold better than any other human group? Um, you know, we've just been talking about them diving, but they, they would dive not only off of the coast of Jeju Island where they lived, but also in the old days, they would do itinerant work to Japan, China, mainland, Korea, you know, all of these places, including Jeju, are very cold in winter. They snow, but no place was as cold as Vladivostok in winter. And so that water was so cold that really the only thing that was keeping it from freezing was the level of salt in the water. And so, you know, again, in the old days, these women were diving in these little cotton, homemade cotton suits that they would sew. And um, there are stories of women dying on impact when they would dive off a boat because the water was so uh, cold, it would shock their hearts and they would they would die on impact. But nevertheless, most of the women just would dive in that water. And so most of the studies that are out there are about this ability to withstand cold. And was it genetic or was it an adaptation? Did they ever come to a conclusion, which it was? Yeah. Uh, in the, There was one study, and it was actually one of the very first ones that I found, and it, the results had been published in Scientific American in the late, I don't know, late 1960s, early 1970s. And they, the study was a three-year study and comparing the Henyo to these two other groups. One are, was Finnish fishermen who keep their hands in really cold water a lot, uh, but not their whole bodies. And the third group, I'm just not remembering right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, trying to look at, was this an adaptation or genetic? And it just so happened that that year was the first year that women started wearing wetsuits. And within one year, they had lost something like 50% of their ability to withstand cold. And by the end of the three-year study, they had lost it entirely. Mm -hmm. So this was completely an adaptation. I actually have on my website, uh, you know, in this section called Step Inside the World of Sea Women, you know, videos and photographs and maps and, you know, all kinds of stuff that people want to do more exploring. One of my favorite videos is a documentary that was done in the late 1950s, early 1960s. It's in black and white. And it follows, a, would say, like a 10-year-old girl as she's learning how to be a diver. And, you know, you follow her. She wakes up in the morning. She puts her little brother on her back and goes out and hauls water. And, you know, I mean, it really follows her throughout the day. But there's this one scene in the film where she and her friends, you know, with all these little girls about the same age, they've just come out of the water on a practice dive. And they're, they're sitting on a bench on, the, on this boat, right? And there's no shelter. They don't have a towel. They don't have jackets. They don't have blankets. There's no heat. And these, you know, like five little girls are just sitting together, huddled together, shivering, you know, like this. And, and it just so stuck in my mind and how this really was learned. And so you started when you were like seven years old to spend time in the water, uh, obviously you know, learning to swim and look for, you know, things that you could 
harvest, practice harvesting or catching, you know, diving down for a particular rock or things like that. But mainly what they were learning was to deal with this unbelievably cold water. In the story, you have the women complaining about their husbands. Of course, all cultures do that. All women do that to some degree. I don't. Uh, I don't complain about my husband. Is he he in the room or something? Well, (laughs) but some of the the men on the island, they didn't, at least according to the story, didn't adapt all that well to their switch roles. Can you talk about that? Well, I don't know that they didn't adapt well. So this is actually something that's really pretty interesting. I, I did find a dissertation that had been written in the early 1970s. This was a woman who had lived for two years in a small village on the island of Uda, which is literally like a stone's throw off of Jeju. So Jeju is, there's the main island and then lots of little tiny islands all around it that are still considered part of Jeju. And she lived there for several years to study these divers in particular. Within the diving culture, the men had grown up with this system, right? It wasn't something that's, you know, every years thrust upon them like it's something new they knew it they as little boys they were learning how to cook and things like that because that was their job that said you know and so is this like an innate thing is this a genetic thing is it what is it just truly cultural that they didn't adapt well they had a lot of depression a lot of domestic abuse a lot of drinking a lot of gambling I mention it, but it's not integral to my the story that I wrote. But a lot of men would have like a, you could almost call it like a mistress, you know, like a second wife, a little wife. Right. That uh, almost, not like a concubine exactly, because they would have their own house. And again, these it's a matrifocal society where women are making the money. So they, you know, it wasn't like the man was setting up a woman over in the next village. The, wo- the woman was already set up and she was inviting him in. But, you know, not a great deal of fidelity, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you'd think, oh, gosh, these guys have it made. They don't have to work. They get an allowance. Um, all they have to do is cook and take care of the babies. But they didn't love it all that much. Oh, and the other thing was think, you know, be deep thinkers. So in the afternoon and sit under the village tree and think deep thoughts. Can you talk about your own personal experience doing the research among the women? Like how receptive were they to share their culture to an outsider? And were you able to dive at all with them? I didn't dive with them. I can swim all right, you know, but I'm not a great swimmer. And I, and you know, these are people who are working. So there are some people, uh, you know, photographers and documentarians, but they're gone and see with them. But they, you know, they're undersea photographers, you know, that they know what they're doing. And I, I just didn't think it was appropriate for, for me to do that. Mm-hmm. So there were really, I'd say, three categories of women and also interviews that I did. I had a lot of interviews that were set up in advance 
where I would go to a woman's home and we would talk, you know, two to eight hours and sometimes on multiple days. So these were the really in-depth interviews. Mm -hmm. And then there were certain places, you know, where, where a group of women, a collective goes into the sea or they're coming out of the sea at the end of the day. And I would go to different spots and just say, oh, you know, can I sit and talk, talk to you all? These women, you know, they're very direct. And so they would either say yes or no, we're busy, go away. And they're loud too. So I'd be, no, go away. Or yes, sit down. And so those interviews were, I would say, sort of along the lines of five to 30 minutes. Because again, this is at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, and they were working. But it was actually really helpful to me to see what they did to prepare to go into the sea, what they were doing as they came out of the sea. Uh, when I was waiting for the women to come out of the sea, the, the men, their husbands were often there to help. And so I got to talk to them, which was really interesting and, and really helpful to me when I was writing the story. And then the last category is there's a group of women who are retired or semi-retired, or maybe they're getting over an injury, who sit on the shore and gather and sort the seaweed that's washed and algae that's washed ashore overnight. And so again, with those, it was just kind of haphazard. I would walk up and say, you know, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And, and the same thing that would happen with the People who were going to work or coming home from work, it was either, yes, yeah, sit down or no, go away, I'm busy. So again, those interviews really ranged from you know five minutes to maybe an hour. So really different groups of women at different sort of stages in their lives, but also in what they were doing and in length. You would think sometimes, oh, you know, maybe you get more information out of an eight-hour interview, and that's true. But, and it will certainly be in a lot more depth because of course you can follow up with questions. But some of the interviews, especially with the women, the retired women on the beach, um, some of that was some of the best material. Sometimes all you need is someone to say one line, right? That will kind of trigger an idea or help things sort of snap into place that maybe I hadn't understood before. I loved those interviews on the beach so much that, as you know, the book opens there, you know, in a, in a more contemporary theme. I guess why, one of the reasons I like those so much is, you know, these, again, semi-retired, retired, but these women were so aware of the world around them as I was talking to them. So they're working, right? They're sorting. They're, they have these little cushions that they are strapped to their behinds. And so they kind of scoot along so that they can get to the next patch of beach. But because they've been under the sea their whole lives, you know, where you have to be so aware of everything around you and really use your peripheral vision, I just found that they were really alert to everything that was going on around us in the moment that we'd be talking. So they'd be working, they'd be talking to me. They were also watching who was on the shore, who was coming in and out of the sea, who was up on the road, 
who was taking pictures, why were they taking pictures? I mean, just like hyper aware. Uh, and again, I think that's, that really comes from that lifetime of having to be hyper aware of everything around them under the sea. So Korea has had a long history of being occupied by other powers. And after the Japanese were pushed out of Korea because of their defeat in World War II, the main concern for the United States, the Allies, the United Nations, and others were trying to contain communism from spreading. But in the process, another tyranny ended up being propped up. Can you talk about that? Right. So... Um, after World War II, you know, there were men who got into a room somewhere and decided to divide the Korean Peninsula along the 38th parallel, with Russia having sort of administrative control over the north and the United States and Great Britain having administrative control over the south. And we said to the south, look, you know, we're going to bring you something great. We're bringing you democracy. And you get to have your own free elections. You know, unfortunately, we don't have a great record at bringing other countries democracy, although we, I'd like to think our hearts are in the right place. We just don't have a great record at it. Sure. Anyway, um, the people there, you know, and, and their own free elections, uh, everybody was excited about it. There was only one problem, which was there was only one candidate. We provided that one candidate and... Of course, he won, and he became a brutal dictator. But in the days leading up to that first election, uh, people demonstrated on the mainland, but also on this island. And I was saying, yeah, we, you know, we do. We, we're excited about this. We want to have our own free elections, and we want to have our own candidates. And so, you know, this again happened on the mainland, happened on the island, but on the island, things started to escalate. So, you know, there'd be a demonstration and then the police would arrest some kids and then some kids would throw some stones through the police station, always a mistake. Then kids, you know, then some kids would be arrested and now tortured. And so it was just escalating and escalating. Um, there was an incident that happened at a demonstration where a little boy was run over by a policeman's horse. I mean, so all of these things, it just kind of up, kept upping the ante until on 4-3, so April 3rd, 1948, uh, was the beginning of what would become an eight-year massacre of the people of this island. And uh, it lasts, again, eight years. And within that eight years, the estimates are between 30 and 80,000 people were killed. And all of the people on this island, which is, it's a big island. It's um, 40 times the size of Manhattan. So, you know, big. All of them had to live within five kilometers of the sea. So the whole interior of the island had to be deserted. And if you were caught on the inside of what was called the ring of fire, um, you could be just shot on the spot. So anyway, after that eight years, then the, there was this next 50 years of secrecy. And if you talked about the massacre, if you wrote about it, there's one 
writer who did write a short, um, I guess we could call it a novella, uh, I would say in the, like the 19, late 1970s, maybe early 1980s, it was just a, you know, again, short story, a novella, and he was arrested and tortured and sent to prison for a while for that. You know, this was really serious. When they, when they wanted to keep it a secret under a dictator, you better keep it a secret. And so even if you were in your kitchen and you were chopping vegetables for lunch and you started talking about it, you know, just among yourselves and within your own family and somebody walked by and heard you or the wrong person walked by and heard you, you could be arrested, sent to jail, tortured, sent to prison, killed, and so could everyone in your family. So this was obviously on this island a, a really traumatic and horrible thing. Well, today, this island is seen or recognized, I guess would be the word, internationally as the island of peace. They have tried as a society to forgive each other. Um, it's now ranked with Rwanda and South Africa again, internationally as models for how to forgive to the rest of the world. And so to me, this, you know, this is why I set the novel at the time that I did to go from the Japanese colonial period up to, we'll just say 2008, but I consider it just present day, uh, was that I could look at that, that time period and really look at this idea of forgiveness. Right. And, you know, forgiveness, it's a it's an interesting thing because it can work one on one. It can work within families. It can be with your neighbors. It can be with between societies. It can be between countries after war thing like that. So that to me, there were all these levels of forgiveness that I could work that I wanted to explore. And by using this this particular period of history, I would be able to do that on, again, on, on several different levels right. and have the model of forgiveness that the island has adopted. Now, that's not to say that everybody on the island has forgiven everyone else. It's said about this island that overall the population does suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, we have to sort of separate it out for a second and say that the native population that, that was has been there for a long time, or even were born there. Today, the island has over 600,000 people living there, and, and they're from all over the world. You know, some of them are from mainland Korea, they're from China, Australia, the United States. You know, it's a big pet place for expatriates from the United States, Britain, Australia. So obviously, the, all of those people aren't suffering from PTSD, but generationally, the people who again, are from Jeju, they, they have suffered from this. You have villages where after the 4-3 incident, the village would divide and now have two names. At some point, either they decided to reunite and go back to their original name. So again, sort of showing this idea of forgiveness, like we're going to go back to being one village. And in other cases where the two you know, what was one village is still two or now three villages and they'll never go back together. I mean, they're, they're still working on it, let's say. Right. Has there been any investigations by the American government about like what, like the American soldiers, the occupying forces, how do you want to say it, uh, knew about these massacres or did anybody try to stop it? 
I did have access and I have a copy of the 755 page human rights report. It's an international report that was started by the Korean government, but has they've had help many sources. So they were able to look into the Korean military and government records. They, the United States allowed them into the U- U.S. <laughs> military and government records. They interviewed people on every side, you know, perpetrators, victims. So they had access to every side. That is where I got most of the material about the U.S. involvement. I mean, there is some other stuff out there uh, that I've read, but the main place was from this report. And so whenever you see a poster or somebody making a speech or something that's in the newspaper where it involves you know, a United States colonel or general or whatever, that, that those are their actual words that they said, or, you know, actual, from actual documents. So what we can say is that we, the United States, did provide air surveillance. We had the airplanes, the people of this island didn't have airplanes. So we were, we were looking for people and villages up in the mountains where uh, people were, you know, still living. And if they were spotted, then patrols would go up and or, you know, different types of groups would go up and and either burn down the village or or, uh, kill and kill all the people there or round them up and take them down to the shore. We provided tents for all of the refugees who had to come down out of the, you know, to be within that five kilometers of the shore. So what did we think we were providing that for? And of course, there are uh, plenty of examples where we were not necessarily out there killing people. We weren't, but we might we might have a patrol out looking around, and they would stumble on something and then not do anything to stop. Was there a directive to just look the other way, or I don't know that anybody knows that. I mean, I didn't see a directive for that. Mm-hmm. I do know that our plan was. When you know when this all first started happening, that the top military man who was in charge at the time, the youth from the U.S., said, "Oh, this is something; it'll be over in two weeks." So I think, especially at the beginning, uh, we did take a role of trying to stop the um, what was you know what eventually did happen. China and Korea have a shared history, both in a constructive and destructive manner. And one of the things you talk about in your book is the influence of Chinese Confucianism on Korean culture. Can you talk about that? Yes. Of all of the Asian countries that South Korea is the most Confucian and considered to be the most Confucian. And so Confucius had a lot of good ideas, but he, he also... Um, and literally, you know, words to live by uh, that still are important to, to, to today. But he didn't have much of 
much affection for women, let's just say. You know, he had all those sayings. An educated woman is a worthless woman. Um, when a girl, oh, and this is one that I've used in every book that I've written all the way up to this one. Uh, when a girl obey her father, when a wife obey her husband, when a widow obey her son. That's pretty deep in the culture of say women as second class citizens mm-hmm. would be a way to put it. But on this island, you know, the, the, the roles are reversed. And also on the island, you know, there's a deep tradition of Confucian, of, of shamanism. The island itself is considered to be the, you know, sort of physical embodiment of a goddess. There are rocks and outcroppings and trees that are uh, associated with particular goddesses. So this is in itself is home to 10,000 goddesses. So that that is, you know, and again, this is all part of shamanism and the culture of that island, which also sort of reflects this matrifocal, the traditional matrifocal society. Well, so how are things on the island today? What's the state of the, the sea women in the late 1970s, there were still about 40,000 divers. Today, there are only about 4,000. Uh, again, these women are in their 70s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And this is part of why um, UNESCO gave them that designation of an intangible world heritage tradition was that you know, they, they're really figuring that this culture is going to die out. So there are a few young women who are coming up, you know, wanting to learn to be divers, but it's in a very different kind of way. They aren't the sole breadwinners of their families. It's usually, and again, very, very few young women. You know, one of the big differences is today, girls can go to school. In the time period that I was writing about, girls didn't go to school. They went to work so that they could you know, earn money to help pay for their brothers to go to school because even public school required fees. When girls could finally go to elementary school, that's the, really the beginning of the end of the Kenya, the divers, because these women would save up their money so that they could send their daughters to school. And so those daughters went through elementary school and junior high and high school and college and university. And so today you see women there who are doctors and engineers and uh, teachers and they work in the tourism business, which is very big on this island. It's considered the Hawaii of Asia. So it's got a huge tourism industry. So there just aren't very many women who are who are choosing to dive uh, and do this very dangerous work in pretty extreme conditions when instead you could work in a gift shop someplace, right? right? So that's why it's really disappearing. But there are some young women who are going into it. And typically they are young mothers who just want a part-time job. So the divers, they only dive for 12, sorry, 14 days out of the month and only for a few hours a day. So this is really pretty ideal for somebody who's a young mother. And in today's dollars, they can make about $30,000 a year for, I guess, what you could even consider, you know, quarter time work, which is very good mm-hmm. and, and certainly goes a long way on that island. <laughs> So 
So what are you working on next? I do think about books for a very long time before I write them. With this, you know, with Island of Sea Women, it was about 10 years with The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. The last book, it was 20. This new one, it's 26 years. Golly. And 26 years ago, when my grandmother died, I found in her belongings a diary written by her mother, so my great-grandmother, who was born on a homestead in South Dakota. The family continued west, homesteaded in Washington State. She got pregnant very young, had to get married, and she and her husband, my great-grandfather, uh, had very, very hard lives. They were itinerant workers, and they were from Alaska down to the Mexican border. And so I think on the surface, this seems very different from any of my other books. I mean, it is my first book that's 100% American, but I see it as fitting in completely with what I've been working on all these years, which is to tell particular moments of history or culture through the eyes of women. And so I would just say two more things. One is this idea of you know, westward migration, how, how this country was settled in the sense that you have people who pioneer, settle, and then continue west. Pioneer, settle, and continue west and pioneer settle and continue west are going west 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 and all of a sudden you smack up against the pacific ocean and and now what mm -hmm. and clearly my great-grandparents didn't know the answer to that because they kept going up and down and up and down right they just like they hit that ocean they it's like okay now what and i think that's something that continues all the way to today you know that people who keep coming west you know, who, who've been living in Ohio or Kansas or wherever and Brooklyn, and now they have to come to California. Uh, and, and then once they get there, it's like, well, now what? Yeah, they go, and, to, they go to Nashville because Nashville's <laughs> flooded with Californians right now. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's the other thing is that they, they people, a lot of people think that they're coming to one thing and they get here and it's something else and then they keep moving on, but they don't have any more West to go. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is we think we live in a time of tremendous change. And of course we do, but not like this period that I'm writing about, which within about 30 years, you go from true pioneer living. I mean, you know, just, you know, everything you can conjure about pioneer living to having electricity, indoor plumbing, radio, movies, cars, airplanes, uh, and then kind of culturally in the World War I, prohibition, a woman's right to vote, and of course, the last big pandemic. And all of those things, you know, had everything, all of that, you know, stuff that we still live with, electricity, um, mm. you know, indoor plumbing, all of the technology within those things may have changed and evolved, but there's still the, the basic things that they, those people got for the very first time. And so, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to write, I would say. And then I have my great-grandmother's words and her own story to follow. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me again. It's been wonderful talk chatting with you. I 
If you'd like to learn more about Lisa C. and her work, you might give In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 103 a listen, where the author discusses her book, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. And there's episode 86, where Mrs. C. helps us learn about Chinese ghosts, including the sexy fox changelings. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.